the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Growing up autistic, today's guest, Jude Morrow, faced immense challenges. Once a nonverbal and aggressive child, he transitioned into a hardworking, responsible father to a non-autistic son. According to Jude, those with autism can have difficulty understanding the world around them and can find it hard to find their voice. But Jude found his, and he uses it to break down the misconceptions and societal beliefs surrounding autism. Jude views his autism as a gift to be shared, not a burden to be pitied, and he teaches that autistic people's lives can be every bit as happy and fulfilling as those not on the spectrum. Jude is a social worker, motivational speaker, and advocate for all things autism. His new book is, Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? Welcome, Jude. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for uh, having me on the show, Joan. I'm uh, very happy with the warm introduction you gave me. Thank you. (laughs) Well, that is your life. And let's start there. Let's begin by talking about your life, your childhood. You describe yourself as a nonverbal and aggressive child. What are your memories from that time of your life? It was just a very lonely existence because from as far as back as I can remember, I knew it wasn't quite like everybody else. I could sit back and look at other children play and have fun and interact with each other. And they were things that I found extremely difficult to do. I did go to a couple of playgroups whenever I was young and a couple didn't meet my needs. And before I went to school, mainstream school, I was at a playgroup for uh, mixed abilities. And I thought I, used, I thought I fit in very well at that group, but it was just a very lonely existence for nearly all of my early childhood and and even teenage years because not only did I feel different, is that I hated the fact that I was so different to everybody else and I almost thought, you know, why can't I be like them? So it was very difficult to experience. Jude, when were you diagnosed with autism and what was the diagnosis? I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome in 2001 whenever I was 11. That was just before I went on to secondary school. And what impact did it have on your family? Well, a diagnosis, like every autistic child in the world and parent, is that a a diagnosis of autism only serves to do one thing in most cases, and that is to tell parents what they already know, because I've never met any parent in any of my live shows or book signings or anything that has believed their child to be autistic and been wrong, so... I was very much the same. I I wasn't actually told of the diagnosis at the time because my parents didn't really want the the label to be put on me. But I always knew that I was different and it was something that I would just have to live with. And the diagnosis meant that I got some additional assistance through my secondary school years in the form of a classroom assistant or some additional help in certain classes that I struggled with. What's interesting, and I I would love for you to try to explain this further to our audience, you keep saying that you knew something was different. and, And I think that oftentimes people don't think that someone who is diagnosed with autism understands that he or she is different. So can you explain what that is like for us? And do most autistic people know that there's something different about them? Absolutely. I would say that is a universal feature, that 
people who are autistic are often cast aside and people would believe that we don't understand which is completely false because I knew I wasn't quite like everybody else. And that's something that I had to deal with. I didn't just drift through life aimlessly, not knowing that I was different to everyone else. And Mm -hmm. I think the sad thing is, is that whenever people hear of the word autism, people automatically go to the intellectual disability mindset where perhaps autistic people don't understand. I know that uh, Autistic people can have learning disabilities as well, but in my case, that isn't true. And I mean, I I don't think that I was very consulted. I don't think a lot of people reached for my feelings. People just thought about me. He doesn't understand. It doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. in some cases, which was quite hard to go through. And since I've been speaking to more autistic people in recent times, that a lot of people have had the same experience and the same existence, which which is quite sad. So, Jude, you had some educational challenges, but yet you progressed through secondary school and graduated from college. How were you able to make that transition? What was your life like and and what did you do to be able to get through that? Well, I would love to say that it was all my sheer goodwill, determination and mindset, but that wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily true. I had the best uh, backroom staff and entourage that anybody could hope for in my mum and dad, sister Emily, my classroom assistant, teachers, and even a couple of friends that I'd made. I didn't go to like an autism specific group whenever I was young. Those things didn't really exist in the early 2000s. But I went to a youth group so that I could meet new people and make friends. And it was there that I realized that I was quite good at doing funding applications on behalf of the group and solving problems. And when I was 18, I was asked back to that group to be a youth leader. And it was from there that I had wanted to pursue a career in social work. And that's what I've been doing since 2012. So, you know, we're talking about autism in relationship to you and your life, but there are so many different types of challenges that people experience. And when you're going through those difficult times, often you don't see a future for yourself. You don't think you're going to be able to accomplish what other people do. So what do you say to someone who may be autistic or going through any type of challenge to help him or her believe in their future? Well, the first thing that I would say is if you have a passion or a drive or a talent, nurture that talent and use it for yourself. Because one of my real loves in life was was reading and writing. And it was always a bit of a bucket list thing for me that I wanted to have a book written by the time I was 30. And I did that whenever I wrote White as Tad, I always look so sad. But no matter what it is, whether it's photography, uh, chess, building things, nurture that talent and use it because that may be one day what makes your living and I don't think that your talent or your special interest should be suppressed by anyone because whether it's in school or even in second and third level education there seems to be uh, an onus on autistic people to fit in with everyone else whenever autistic people have been shown to be bright courageous and creative people. So if those talents were suppressed from the likes of Einstein, Mozart or Stanley Kubrick or Michelangelo, the arts and humanity may not be the same as what what it would be now. What would you say to a parent who has an autistic child, they just received this diagnosis, what do you say to that parent that he or she can take in to be able to better help their child? Well, the first thing that I would I would say is to seek out local voluntary and charitable groups. A diagnosis only has one practical application, which would be a periodic medical review, whether it's three months, six months or annually. But if you have an autistic child, look at the services and groups in your area because it'll serve to do two things. The first thing will be it'll allow your autistic child to meet other autistic children like them. That was an opportunity that I didn't have and that I would love to have had. Perhaps I wouldn't have grown up feeling so lonely in the world and that I was the only one. And for parents, it would allow them to meet parents in the same position as them because whenever I was very young, my mother had a very lonely existence too because a lot of the time I didn't want to go outside The routine was pretty much uh, constructed by myself and my my mother had to follow it. And I suppose whenever she, whenever I went up in the years and she'd 
started talking to more people. She got more advice and, and guidance from, from other parents as well. So that uh, is probably the most useful thing that I can say. Reach out to local groups, sign up. And a lot of the time you don't even need a diagnosis for those things, whether it's in the States or Europe or even here. Any, any group that I have spoken to, I have always asked them, do you need a diagnosis to join your group? And always the answer is no, simply because it's a global issue that waiting lists and uh, diagnostic timetables can be anywhere from three to five years. And what is the process for getting a diagnosis? I know someone who she is just certain that her daughter is on the spectrum, but she can't get the diagnosis. And without that, she can't get the services she needs. So what is the process? Well, it does vary. I mean, in the United States and here, the healthcare systems are vastly different with here. We have the NHS, and I know that in the U.S. it's more of an insurance-based system. Mm-hmm. But even if she reaches out to a local charitable group and explains that situation to say, look, we're waiting on a diagnosis. I believe my child is autistic, and I would bet everything I have that she is not wrong because I've never met a parent that has but I believe my child to be autistic and being wrong, as I said. Mm-hmm. But I, I would strongly recommend that she reaches out to her own local charitable groups and explains that, look, we're waiting on a diagnosis. The first uh, port of call really is your general practitioner uh, who will make the onward referrals to psychology or childhood psychiatry to make that diagnosis. But a lot of parents, uh, like the the person you know, are in the same position where it's just waiting lists and waiting lists and waiting lists. And even in the United States, no matter how premium your health care coverage is, even for psychiatry, waiting lists are still very, very long. So a lot of charitable uh, groups do understand that and will often offer some assistance and support and services, even if a formal diagnosis isn't exactly made just yet. You're a parent now. You have a son. What has that journey been like for you? <laughs> well, Ethan is my best friend. He is the, he's just a whirlwind of happiness. He's seven now. and We get on like a house on fire. We're two peas in a pod. He's not <laughs> autistic. He's not, he's, he's, not li- he's not like me. So it's nice to have a little intimate view into his universe. And likewise, I, I allow him into mine. And it wasn't always easy because whenever I graduated from university I was a social worker I had a driving license a car I had my own space and in my head being autistic was something that affected me in childhood and I had left that behind because I'm now over six feet tall and have a beard surely I can't be autistic anymore <laughs> so when, it, when whenever I learned that Ethan was coming along mm-hmm. I was plagued by doubt as as is a lot of first-time parents but being autistic I think I maybe felt it slightly more acutely than what most fathers would. And the constant ever-changing landscape of fatherhood really started to affect me because by nature, I'm quite a regimented and routine-reliant person. And I mean, with babies, babies don't exactly work like clockwork, do they? They wake up at different times, need changed at different times, like different foods, different things. And over time, these things started to affect me to the point where I just felt completely out of touch and not in control of my own life. And I suppose whenever I was a young man, whenever I was 24, 25, I still felt a lot of resentment uh, for my childhood because I just felt it was just one challenge uh, after another. I never fit in anywhere. And those things really stayed with me, even growing up. And it came to be that whenever Ethan was three, My struggles were so apparent that Ethan actually asked my own mother, why does daddy always look so sad? And that's what became the title of the book. And it was whenever my three-year-old son could see so clearly that I was struggling, that Mm -hmm. I knew I needed to come to terms with being autistic and, and accept myself for who I am. So Jude, how did you manage that? How did you, for someone who it was important to have repetition and routine and that was your sense of normalcy. How were you able to overcome that? Well, um, the the answer sort of comes in uh, in two parts. The the, fir- the first part is the kind of unhealthy part, uh, mm-hmm. which is that what I decided to do to kind of ease my anxieties was to take up a hobby. And I know a lot of people would take up relaxing, calming hobbies like 
meditation, flower arranging, baking a cake even, but I decided to set myself the lofty goal of running a marathon. So I went out running morning and night after work and ran the hills and the valleys and became almost obsessed with it, with, with running. I had taken up exercise and whilst I did feel the physical benefits of it, like uh, I lost weight, I felt much better about myself. But on the other side of it, really, I was literally running away, running away from the problem, which was getting closer to Ethan and forging that good relationship with him and accepting myself for who I was. And it was only after I'd completed the marathon with an injured hip because I just did not want to give up. Uh, I was turning up on the day. I was running the race that I'd realized that I had pretty much missed a year of my son's life because I didn't want to face the fact that I was autistic and that he could see it. And it was then that I had finally accepted the help that I had been offered for so many years in the form of uh, psychotherapy, counselling and cognitive behavioural therapy. And through those things, I had to change my lens on life of how I look back at things. Because up to that point, I looked back at my life as nothing but strife and challenges and being cast aside by society. But really, when I look back on it now, having undergone these therapies, is that my life has really been one victory after another, Mm -hmm. getting through school, getting through university, becoming a dad, forging a career. And, you know, I now view my life and childhood with pride as opposed to self-loathing, pity and hatred. And you know, gee, that's a lesson for everyone because we tend to look at limitations or things we can't do. But I love what you said, that when you view your life, it's been one victory after another. And that's what we all should be doing. Oh, it it has been because I just thought that no matter, I was focusing more on the barriers that were being thrown in my path as opposed to emphatically and in style jumping over them and running beyond them. And that's, uh, I think... In psychology, uh, as I learned whenever I was going through my social work degree, is that we humans seem to have a terrible negative bias. And I suppose it's like a survival instinct that 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 worry, that self-doubt, because it's what stopped primitive man being mauled by mammoths and bears whenever uh, we lived in caves and trees. And I suppose what we can do is overcome that in time to view ourselves more positively, become more... Uh, productive and be proud of who we are. And I I don't think that message is strictly for autistic people. I think that can relate to many, many more people. Mm -hmm. The book is Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? If you'd like to get more information about Jude and his work, you can visit judemorrow.com or as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com, which stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. Jude, in our final moments... What do you want us to know about autism and how would you like to see society change their views on autism? I would love for autistic people to be included in every conversation in wider society. The autistic view is formed by parents and medical professionals and really most of autistic literature is non-autistic people telling autistic people like me what autism is not. So I would encourage everyone to listen to autistic voices as much as possible and that being autistic is not a death sentence. It's For me, it has been the driving force behind all of my victories and success in life, whether it's from becoming a social worker, selling out speaking tours, selling books, and even speaking, uh, speaking with you. I mean, it's a positive thing and... And without autistic people in the world, I just don't think the world would be as nice a place and that autism is simply a different neurotype and that autistic people shouldn't be brought into line like like everyone else and that every difference, no matter what it may be, whether it be race or gender or sexuality or neurotype, whatever it may be, is that everybody should be celebrated on, on their own merit and not stigmatized because they're not like the majority. Jude, thank you so much for spending this time with us and for sharing your story and your message. And thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Allison Carmen, a business consultant, life coach, and author of The Gift of Maybe, offering hope and possibility in uncertain times. Allison's podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry. Allison is here today to discuss why expectations can be a source of suffering. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. Allison, when we expect things to happen and they don't, we can feel disappointed. And and I know this firsthand. I'm someone who really does expect a lot from other people. And there's a saying that goes, if you don't expect anything, you can't get hurt. Do you believe the expectations that we hold can have a negative impact on how we live our life? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, expectations are our way to deal with uncertainty because deep down a lot of us are afraid that we're not okay. So we write stories about what needs to happen for us to feel safe. And that's what expectations are. We hold them and they make us feel safe, but they're really just a story. And the trickiest thing about expectations is we don't realize that we think that expectations are making us feel better but really, they create so much dissatisfaction in our lives. And I can even just remember a few weeks back, I took my parents to a Je- my favorite Japanese restaurant, and I was so excited. And the minute we walked in, my mother looked around, and the place was a little shabby, and she didn't like where she was sitting. And because it wasn't what she expected, because she thought to herself, oh, Allison's taking me to her favorite restaurant, because it didn't look the way that she thought it was going to look and because the table wasn't where she thought it was going to be, the dissatisfaction kicked in. And as we were eating the food, she was never able to let go of that initial reaction to the restaurant. And that's what happens. Because things are not happening the way we thought, we sit in this satisfaction. And what it really does is it steals the moment. And that's the most poignant thing about expectations is because we're so disappointed we can't see what's in front of us. There could be a miracle happening in front of us and we wouldn't know it. And it's interesting, if you speak to people who have had great loss in their lives, they're they're very interesting because they see how their expectations stole that moment. And they have these feelings, if I could just go back and do it again, and we don't want to live like that. The best way to live is to free ourselves and to come into each moment and allow ourselves to see the miracle of the moment. And that's present living. And present living is poignant living. It's deep living. And then when we let go of those expectations, we could have an expansive view of all that's happening in our lives. But another thing expectation does, the third thing is that it also creates broken ideas. And that's something we all also need to look at because you could have a business. And if you have this expectation that you were going to make all this money, $200,000, $300,000, and it's only making $50,000, if it's a broken idea, what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to see the real success of your business because you're going to be so busy saying, I should have made that kind of money that you won't be able to look at what you have and you won't be able to use it as a springboard to move forward. And I also find sometimes even in broken relationships, people get so caught on the idea of what they thought they would have that sometimes they don't even have a broken heart. It's just a broken idea of how you thought life would be. And when we carry these broken ideas, we can't move forward. We can't live in an expansive way. So what expectations do is they create a story that we think is going to keep us safe, 
But what they really do is they steal the moment and they don't allow us to see what's really happening in our lives. I can recall a conversation that I had with you recently, and in it, I was sharing a story about something that happened in the past, and I said the words to you, so-and-so should have, and before I even finished the sentence, you stopped me and you said, get rid of the should. So how can we learn to expect less? Do you have a technique that you can offer to help us? Yes, I have three steps that I use in my own life and with my clients to try to lessen expectations. And the first one is always awareness. And I find that if I'm aware of my expectations, I'm able to let them go. Because if you think about it, if you could start every day and say, I'm not going to expect anything today. I'm not going to expect what this restaurant's going to be like. I'm not going to expect what my my relationship with my friend is going to be like. I'm going to have no expectation for what my work day is going to be like. We're not going to constantly be disappointed. Because we're going to say, I'm just going to be open. I don't know what's going to happen. And it's not like you're giving up your likes and your dislikes. But because you lessen those expectations, you're going to be so present that whatever comes your way, you're going to enjoy and you're going to be open. But you're also going to see so many more possibilities in your life because you don't realize expectations shut us down. It's a limited view of all that can be. And the minute we let it go, we are so available for new possibilities. We are so available for what uncertainty can give us. It's almost like we're walking around with more strength and more trust for ourselves because we're allowing life to unfold. And we're saying, I'm going to be so present, willing, and able to handle what comes my way. And I'm going to be willing to pursue my goals in such an open way that you're going to allow more things to happen for yourself. Another reason why they steal our joy is because they make us think the life we have is always going to be there. We think our husband's always going to be there. Our friends are always going to be there. Our job is always going to be there. And so we stop seeing the miracles because we think life is always going to be a certain way. And I don't say this to upset people. I say it that it's so sacred every moment of our lives. So if we're able to see the sacredness and let go of how we think it's always going to be, that's when the preciousness comes in. That's when we notice the flowers. We notice the trees. We feel the love that we share with someone because it's so precious because we don't know how long it'll be there and if it'll always be there. So it's not that we live in more fear, but we live in more gratitude and appreciation. And I also just want to go back to this idea of broken ideas, that the expectation makes us hold on to things in our lives that are really not working. And that's what I call the broken idea. It's that we're so sure our lives should have been a certain way that we can't let it go and see what it is today. And life will always change. And things we thought we'd have in our lives, sometimes we don't. And businesses we thought we'd have and partners we thought we'd have, everything always changes. And so we have to be able to let go of the life we thought we were going to have to really embrace the life that's in front of us and to also embrace what could possibly be. So you need to ask yourself, is what's happening in my life real or it's just a broken idea of how I thought it should be? And if we could let go of these ideas and the past and how we thought it could be and the expectations, we will show up so open to have the life that we really want to have. And that's the most important thing. If we could be present, we could be open and we could look into the unknown and say, I'm still okay, and I can handle what's happening. I don't need to expect things. I just need to be open and have faith in myself that no matter what happens, I will still be okay, and life is filled with hope and possibility. Can you apply the concept of maybe to eliminating expectations? Absolutely, because deep down, we create these expectations because we're afraid that we won't be okay. That's the biggest fear, that we're not safe, that we're not well, that we can't have success. So what this idea of maybe does, it just allows us to cast doubt on our biggest fear. So for me, when a big disappointment happens, when I see I have a broken idea, the first thing that I will say to myself is maybe I'm still okay. Maybe everything is still okay. Maybe what's happening is good. Maybe things will get better. So what it does, it just provides hope and allows me to let go of everything I thought I knew And to realize that just because I don't know doesn't mean that things are not going to be okay. And just because I don't know doesn't mean that that success is not around the corner. Everything we don't know is not our enemy and maybe reminds us of that, maybe allows us to let go of the expectations and to look within ourselves and to look outside of ourselves and know it's all a big maybe. 
but that is hopeful and that is filled with new possibilities and new opportunities for our life moving forward. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Allison and her work, or if you'd like to listen to her podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, you can visit her website, allisoncarmen.com. And as always, to hear more from Allison, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Allison. We'll be right back. In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now, you can listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site, search for Conversations with Joan, and subscribe. New shows drop every Monday. You can also access the podcast through our website, cyacyl.com. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan. This is New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Biology is no longer destiny. Our DNA doesn't determine our health as once believed. According to the new science of epigenetics, the majority of our genes are fluid and dynamic, and their expression is shaped by what we think and what we do. Joining me today to discuss how we can influence our genes by the choices we make every day is Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, a world-renowned pioneer in integrative medicine. Welcome, Dr. Pelletier. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for your invitation. Looking forward to talking with you. Dr. Many people are concerned about their family history when it comes to health, and they believe that they're stuck with whatever diseases plague their loved ones. But new science shows that we have a profound influence over our health by the choices we make every day. Why is this the case? Well, uh, it's a common misconception, I think, among uh, the general population, but even among health professionals, that the gene is like a hard drive in a computer, and in various set of directions, instructions on everything from hair color to eyes to weight to diseases you will get, how long you will live, etc. And it's simply not accurate. Um, what we do know with epigenetics uh, research is that probably 5 to 10% of what we see as adult health, adult longevity, uh, intelligence, uh, you know, pres- preservation of cognitive function, et cetera, uh, is due to, to genes that are monogenic or fully penetrant. In other words, they're really pushed and manifest themselves genetically. The other 90% of everything we experience from the age of about nine months through adulthood is determined by how we influence our genes, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And that's so important, doctor. Think about that, 90 to 95%. We control, and I I get excited every time I hear that because it it, it just gives you this freedom that you don't feel like you have a sentence. You know, I come from a family, my father had lung cancer, my sister had lung cancer, my mother had heart disease. So these would be the things that most people write off and say, well, those are my genes and that's pretty much my future. But what you're explaining to us is so exciting because it doesn't have to be that way. That's correct. And you've just articulated uh, it better than I could, is no matter what you're, you you have a push. So all of us have a push. Our genes are predisposing us to heart disease or cancer or irritable bowel syndrome or a a whole host of other conditions. But that's all it is. It's a push. It does not mean it becomes manifest. And so what we're really talking about in epigenetics, epigenetics, epi means above, around the gene. And around the gene, there is literally a molecular coding, has a terribly long name, single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And they're like little rheostats. We turn them up or we turn them down. And the turning it up and turning it down is dependent on diet, stress, beliefs, uh, the environment, uh, our physical environment, psychosocial environment. So what we're really talking about is that we can influence, even if we're pushed in a particular direction, we can influence that positively if we want to, 
or we can slow it down or even eliminate it uh, from our genetic uh, inheritance. It is not deterministic. Is that what is meant when we hear about flipping the switch on or off biochemical markers? Correct. And it's uh, the on-off is a little, it's, it's a little simple, but it's more like a rheostat um, where you have a light in a room and you can turn it up very bright or you can turn it down very dim if you want to have a dinner party or something. So it, our, our genes really are acting more like a rheostat rather than on and off. They're never all off. They're never silent, what they would call a silent gene, and they're never fully expressed uh, except in rare disease again that show up within the first six to nine months. If you have a monogenic or what they call a fully penetrant genetic condition, it will show up within the first six to nine months of life. After that, um, it really is dependent on, again, this rheostat-like function through, through everything we do day in and day out will determine whether that shows up or is expressed or whether it is suppressed. Doctor, what do you feel is the best use of today's epigenetic research? Well, I think the, to me, the most important thing to convey to, to anyone is what we're talking about, which is you are not doomed by your genes, nor are you guaranteed a long life expectancy. So someone might say, well, my parents lived into their 90s, so I can eat and drink and do whatever I want. That's not the case. Um, you know, I, I think one of the places where we assume that genetics has the greatest influence on us is our longevity, how long we're going to live. And even that turns out to be false. There's actually a study that came out that the company Ancestry, which says does Ancestry.com, teamed up with a group of genetics researchers. And they published this study in Genetics, which is the main uh, gene research journal. What they did is they took all of the people who have reported their data into Ancestry.com and they created a 400 million person database. Now that's staggering. Most research is based on a few hundred or a few thousand people. This is 400 million database of parents, I'm sorry, grandparents, parents, and children. What they wanted to see is did the life expectancy or the age of death of grandparents, parents affect the children, the grandchildren, or they looked at lifestyle factors like diet, exercise, physical fitness. Did those predict better the age of the uh, grandchild? And it turned out overwhelmingly that the lifestyle factors predicted longevity, not the genetic inheritance from their parents or grandparents. So I think that's a very dramatic instance of the fact that we assume and, and, and very often that, you know, the life expectancy is governed by our genes. It is even governed there, which I think is fascinating. So the best application of epigenetics is to relieve us, if you will, from the burden of feeling either that we have a guarantee, which we don't, or we have a vulnerability, which we don't. It is our choice, our selection, our involvement that makes the difference. Doctor, there's so much research that is showing the importance of lifestyle choices. Do you think that traditional medical practitioners are catching up with this information? Are they now seeing the connection between the way we live and eat with our overall health? <laughs> That's quite a challenging question. Mm -hmm. I my, my opinion is, yes, that medicine is changing. Uh, and I think what we see, we see integrative medicine, personalized medicine, uh, functional medicine. And, and those three phrases are all kind of descriptions or attempts to describe this integration of lifestyle with conventional medicine. Conventional medicine is basically pharmaceuticals and surgery, diagnosis of disease. That, that's the domain of medicine. But around that is then the domain of health, which is much larger. Most of us are healthier than sick. Most of us are healthier for most of our lives than not, not well. Uh, so what we're really looking at is what is the larger picture for people day in and day out, year over year, in terms of influencing their life. So what the new emphasis now is more on uh, bio, what are called biomarkers or basically biological indicators of your state of health. So all of us are familiar with cholesterol. I think everyone knows their total cholesterol at this point. That's a biomarker. If it's too high, it means a problem. If it's too low, it also means a problem. But if you had feedback, if you knew 
what your biomarker was and was it within an optimal range and we can determine that for hundreds of bodily functions that are governed by genetics then we can optimize those we can bring those within range through all of the various lifestyle factors we've just been talking about when you bring them within range you optimize your mental faculties your physical ability your emotional spiritual direction in life and that to me is the is the more interesting challenge uh, for the future. And medicine is beginning to recognize that. You find Scripps Institute and the Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, all of them now have lifestyle programs wrapped around the care of diseases, including cancer, heart disease, irritable bowel. So we're seeing even the major medical institutions are moving in this direction. Doctor, you say that there are at least seven biological pathways that determine which major diseases or states of health a person will potentially experience. What are they and how can we learn this information? Right. Uh, This is conventional uh, biochemistry. Uh, There are really seven biochemical pathways in the body and these are all governed by a relatively small set of genes. So this is how the genes, when I said the genes express themselves, So when the gene turns on or turns off or goes dormant, each of these pathways are in turn affected. So just quickly, just to rattle through them, and we can go back to any one of them, is methylation. And methylation is like punctuation. So it says, here's the genetic code, here's a period. That's the end of that statement. Uh, There's inflammation. We're all familiar with inflammation. We think it's a risk for heart disease. But on the positive side, it also is when we get a minor cut. That's inflammation, so we need inflammation. It's not bad. I mean, there are so many diets now that promise you to eliminate inflammation. Well, that's nice, but it's misguided. We need a certain amount of inflammation. The other third one is oxidative stress. And so we all, whenever metabolism occurs in the presence of oxygen, we get byproducts. And if it's excessive under stress, then we get excessive byproducts, and that's damaging. A fourth is detoxification, so the body is continually purging ourselves biochemically and ridding ourselves of cancer cells. All of us have cancer cells at any given point in time. Our immune system surveils it, eliminates them, etc. Then immunity is the fifth, and immunity is simply how does your body know self from not self? Who are you versus the bacteria, the viruses, the other kinds of pathogens that are in our environment? And the sixth is lipid metabolism. So it's really how well do you digest fats? And we always hear about uh, the no-fat diet. We've got to eliminate fats. That's simply false. There are people that can consume very high-fat diets. They have a highly expressed uh, gene for lipid metabolism. They can consume fats all day long, and it doesn't harm them. So for them to go on a low-fat diet doesn't make any sense. In fact, it may even create certain hormonal deficiencies. And the last is mineral metabolism. So mineral metabolism is just that. It's all the trace elements, the zinc, the copper, all of the various kinds of uh, subfractions within foods that on which we depend for our health. So those are the seven pathways, and each of them are influenced by genes, and the genes are influenced again by what we do in our our lifestyles. From what you've described, to me, it sounds like with all of the studies and and what we know about genetics, it it really sounds like we're moving away from the one-size-fits-all approach to wellness and, and really getting specific tailoring things to a person's composition. Completely agree. And again, you've just described it perfectly. Um, The Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, um, he's called it precision medicine and or personalized medicine. And what it means is that everything we tend to do in healthcare and medicine is one size fits all. So one diet should fit everyone. One prescription should fit everyone. One particular drug is good for every conceivable kind of disease. And again, that's just not accurate. So what the epigenetics allows us to do is there are tests, there are assays for genes and blood, and soon they'll be for the biome or the intestinal tract that tell us who we are. So if someone, you know, we're, we're barraged by conflicting information on diet, ketogenic diets, grapefruit juice diets, high fat, low fat, Mediterranean, 
you name it, everyone has a dietary miracle. Well, the problem is that unless we know who we are, how do we know what a good fit is? And there are now genetic tests that can get down to very specific information. They can literally tell you, eat uh, almonds, not walnuts, or vice versa, eat walnuts, not almonds, mm -hmm. because genetically you're predisposed to be able to digest one better than the other. So this world of epigenetics opens up personalized medicine and it's taking pharmacology, it's taking foods, uh, exercise, stress management, environmental exposures down to the level of what do you as an individual really need rather than a general guideline. It's like if you uh, buy a, a dress or a suit. I mean, one is buying it, the second is the tailoring. So we're talking about tailoring these guidelines to individual use. For someone who's listening to this conversation and says, you know, I really want to take advantage of what's happening in science and I want to get more tailored care, but the doctor isn't doing that. How can the person find out this information and what type of physician should he or she be visiting? That's a great question. There is a program uh, at the University of Arizona School of Medicine it was started by a very good friend, longtime colleague, Andrew Weil, a well-known author, and it's called the Center for Integrative Medicine. And they've trained uh, physicians who are all over the United States, and all of them have been trained in exactly what we're talking about. They all have a conventional medical training, and they've all usually been out in practice for a number of years, and they go back to school in which they learn herbal medicine, uh, Ayurveda, osteo osteopathy, and chiropractic mind-body medicine techniques. So they learn these other techniques and how to integrate them into conventional medicine. So again, if you go to the University of Arizona School of Medicine, Center for Integrative Medicine, there's a roster of physicians all over the United States that are practicing in the way we're talking about. The other is there's the uh, functional medicine group, physicians who practice using predominantly nutrition, stress management techniques, and other interventions for, for uh, more integrated care. Dr. Pelletier, thank you so much for being here with us. This information, it's so exciting because it gives us so much power over the way we live our life, the way we age. And uh, as you said, it's never too late. So I think it's time that we all get going with it. So thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, and that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life coaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. Do you ever feel like there is no support and you're doing things all on your own? With hypnosis, you can bring in the feeling of being supported. 
Hi, I'm Mary Beth Battaglia, and I am a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. Many times, people feel disconnected and the weight of the world upon them. It's not a very comfortable place to live in. Through the mind and visualization, we can create support within us and all around us. Take a moment to take a nice deep breath in and slowly let it out. And imagine yourself in a forest sitting against a tall, strong tree. Allow yourself to feel the tree having your back. Feel the love from the tree. Feel the support and draw from its strength to help you feel good within and supported. Allow yourself to really embrace it and see yourself moving forward in your life with the support, with the strength from the tree. And just see yourself feeling complete and happy. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, and you can find out more about hypnosis at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. When deciding to list your home for sale, the goal is to sell your home at the highest price possible within the shortest period of time. Making sure that your home sells fast is an important part of this process because it makes sure that you net the most money possible. Hi, my name is Danielle Grosso from my team, GC Properties, New Jersey, within Keller Williams Realty, here to share four tips with you on how to sell your home faster and at the highest price. One, make buyers feel at home by decluttering your home. Pack away all personal items like pictures, awards, and sentimental belongings. Two, since you took the time to declutter, keep it organized. Before the buyers show up, pick up toys, make the beds, clean and put away the dishes. Three, give buyers full access. Some buyers, especially those relocating, don't have much time available. If they can't get into your house right away, they might move on to the next one, and you don't want to miss the opportunity. Four, and most importantly, price it right. With all the competition coming onto the market, you want to make sure your home is noticed. By pricing it to sell immediately, your home will be seen by the greatest amount of buyers, might get multiple offers, and will sell above the asking price. Wouldn't that be great? If you want to sell your home in the least amount of time, at the best price, with as little hassle as possible, a local realtor is a useful guide. Call them today to find out what you need to do to get your home sold. And if you have any further questions about real estate, whether that be buying, selling, or investing, please visit our website, gcpropertiesnj.com and click the contact button. I'd love to connect. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.